Some of you were here perhaps three, I don't know, three or four weeks ago when Nick was speaking about Philip. Um, he also stood here and said, I'd wish I was talking about Thomas. Uh, I know that Nick cares passionately about Thomas and the fact that he's been labelled as doubting Thomas. And uh, I almost felt convicted to go up to him and say, Nick, you can do it. Because I know he really is, but he isn't here, so he can't anyway. So. And I'm quite pleased, really, because I've really enjoyed putting this together. And hopefully, at the end of this, you'll see why Thomas has such a bad press and why it's so undeserved. Thomas is perhaps, after Peter and John, one of the most remembered of the disciples for that one statement which he makes following Jesus' resurrection. In John 20, 25, following Jesus' reappearance to the other disciples when Thomas was not with them, we read this. So the other disciples told him, that's Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And as I say, this statement down the years has earned him the very unjust title of Doubting Thomas. And I hope to show you this morning why he really doesn't deserve that at all. Firstly, he was the, not the only disciple to have doubts. He's the only one to express them openly. But as we shall see shortly, that was who Thomas was. If he didn't know something, he would ask the question. Often the question that the other disciples were thinking about but didn't want to ask in case they looked silly or perhaps they were afraid to. I said Thomas wasn't the only disciple who doubted and we can read in scripture about those others who doubted as well. In Matthew 28 verses 16 and 17 and I've spoken about this before just before the Great Commission was given we read this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Note it doesn't say one or even one or two, but some, implying, I believe, a number greater than two. And because of what Thomas said when Jesus appeared to him later in John 20, I do not believe that Thomas would have been one amongst these doubters. In Mark 16, verses 9 and 11, concerning Jesus' resurrection, we read this. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him the disciples, and those who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. They did not believe it. And finally, in Luke 24, verses 37 to 43, we read, While they, the disciples, were still talking about this, this was the appearance of Jesus to two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He, Jesus, said to them, Why are you troubled? 
And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, as we read, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Exactly the same reaction in each of these, especially the account in Luke, where Jesus invites the disciples to touch him to see he isn't a ghost, and shows them his hands and feet, as the question which Thomas asked in John 20. But it's Thomas who gets the name Doubting. Why was Thomas' initial questioning so important to earn him the title? I believe the answer comes a little later in John 20, but we'll look at that shortly. Who was Thomas? As with the other disciples, we have only rudimentary information in the scriptures. But other sources tell us this. Thomas, it was believed, was born in Galilee and was martyred, probably in Madras in India, by being run through with spears. He was in India as a missionary for the gospel, following the disciples splitting up and leaving Jerusalem. He had another name, Didymus. Both names mean twin, Thomas in Aramaic and Didymus in Greek. And John and Nick have shown us in previous weeks that there was a cultural crossover in many of the disciples, and nicknames they were given. And it's unclear whether Thomas actually had a twin or whether Didymus was a nickname given to him because of his similarity to one of the other disciples, or some even suggest Jesus himself. It's again unclear as to what his profession was before he became a disciple, but some have suggested that because of his inquiring mind and logical questioning, with a desire for answers rather than supposition that he may have been some, had some sort of scientific background. He's mentioned in all of the Gospels and in Acts as one of the twelve, as they are listed there. Matthew 10.3, Mark 3.18, Luke 6.15 and Acts 1.13. For those of you that write notes, these are all on our website, so you don't necessarily need to write them down now. But I say only as part of a list of the disciples of Jesus because they are listed there in each of those Gospels. It's only in John's Gospel that Thomas plays a not insignificant role in scriptural events. As I said before, Thomas is shown to have an inquiring mind, and if he didn't know something, he asked until he got a satisfactory answer. Jesus' ministry was amazing. And you have to feel for the disciples as Jesus speaks to them in a very radical way about his ministry and what is to come. Nothing like it had ever been heard before. I'm not so sure that we would not have had doubts ourselves as we heard and saw some of the things that Jesus did and said to the disciples if we didn't have the benefit of hindsight, if we'd been living there at the time and seeing it unfold. I'm not so sure we would have managed to take it all in and understand what it was all about. Thomas is first mentioned in John chapter 11. Jesus had had a report that his friend, the one you love, as Mary and Martha put it, Lazarus, 
was gravely ill and he was asked to go to him. What was the disciples' reaction to this request? In verses 8 and 9 we read, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea, because that was where Lazarus, Mary and Martha lived. If you look in the previous chapter, you'll find that a short while before that, Jesus had already been in Judea, and the Jews there had tried to stone him for blasphemy. But he managed to escape from them and cross the Jordan to the area where John the Baptist had preached. So it wasn't the best area for him to want to return to. The disciples' response, I would suggest, is perhaps very much like ours might have been. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there, walking into danger and taking us with you, may perhaps be implied. They didn't seem too keen on it. I don't know if I would have been either. Thomas then speaks his first words in Scripture. In verse 16 we read, Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we might die with him. That's Jesus. Are these the words of a man who is doubting his belief in Jesus as the Messiah? Are these the words of a man who is afraid to die for those beliefs? No. They are the words of a man who is totally committed to Jesus to his ministry, and to the message of good news that he is proclaiming. They are the words of a man who can see his fellow disciples faltering and speaks to encourage them in their faith and their trust in Jesus. Far from the words of a man who is doubting Jesus or his ministry. In John 14, we hear from Thomas again as Jesus talks to the disciples about what is to come and is preparing them as best he can for the unprecedented events which are going to unfold. How do you tell a group of men who have been following you and believe in you some of the things which are going to happen over the next days? Some of the unprecedented, unbelievable, amazing things which are going to happen. How do you prepare them for that? I think even Jesus struggled to put into words the things which would still their hearts and let them know exactly what was going to happen. And as we read later, they still didn't comprehend it all, even after it's spoken. We read this in John 14, which follows on from chapter 13, not surprisingly, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, predicted his betrayal, and he sent Judas off to betray him. He also told Peter that he would deny him three times before the crock crowed. They had heard all of this, and I suspect they were pretty shell-shocked by now. And Jesus tries to bring them these words of comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. A very familiar passage to us, and because we know the rest of the scripture, 
we know what Jesus is saying here and how we can obtain eternal life. But try and put yourselves in the disciples' shoes as they are hearing this for the first time. On top of everything else that Jesus has said in the last few days and hours about his death and his betrayal. Remember what we read in Matthew 28 when the disciples had witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection and were about to witness the ascension of Jesus into heaven where having witnessed all this and Jesus having reassured them we still read in verse 17 when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted. Still they couldn't quite believe what was happening and what Jesus had said to them. It was all too much to take in and it was only on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came that their eyes were opened to the whole truth. And we see a group of frightened men who have probably obeyed Jesus command to stay in Jerusalem because they didn't know what else to do. We see them transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into bold ambassadors of the good news of Jesus such that when Peter preached over 3,000 were added to their numbers on that one day would we have been any different? Well back to John 14 who is it that speaks out what I'm pretty sure all of the disciples were thinking and wondering after Jesus had told them that they knew the way to where he was going. In verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? No frills, just a direct seeking of the answer to a question Thomas doesn't know the answer to. What did Jesus do in response? Did he, as I might have done, sigh deeply because they still haven't got it? Go over what he said previously to try and clarify even more what he said? No. He doesn't do any of that. He says these words, which mean so much to us as Christians and is the basis of our trust and faith in Jesus. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Note Jesus says, I am the way. Not I am one of the ways, or I am the way and there are others who will come after me to be the way as well. No. He says, I am the way. And to reinforce it, he continues, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, if you want eternal life, then you must accept me as your Lord and Saviour, the Son of God who came to die for your sins and repent of your old ways and put your complete faith and trust in me. There is no other way to get to heaven. Many, I'm afraid, nowadays try to water the statement down to make it more acceptable and attractive to a wider audience. But just as Thomas's question was direct and to the point, then Jesus' answer was also direct and to the point, so there could be no mistaking what he was saying. 
Thomas, along with the other disciples, had many unanswered questions about why Jesus' death had come about and the resurrection as well. Could it really be true that Jesus had been raised from the dead? And as we've seen, it's not until Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they get revelation of the truth of what has happened. So is it any wonder that Thomas, with his inquiring mind and thirst for answers, makes his statement in John 20, 25, and doesn't actually deserve the title some have given him of doubting, because the rest of the disciples, as we've seen, were just as confused and doubting about what was happening as he was. It just happened that he was the one who put his thoughts into words. So what happened next? In John 20, 26, we read this. A week later, his, that's Jesus' disciples, were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What was Thomas's response to this? In verse 28 we read, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. All doubt was removed from Thomas and he willingly acknowledges who Jesus is. From the other scriptures that we've read, it seems that not all of the disciples were willing to totally accept who Jesus was at this point. Although they had not spoken out their doubts, And Pentecost was to be their Enlightenment Day. For this reason, I think Jesus' next statement, although directed at Thomas, was also for the other disciples to hear as well. Because Jesus would have known their doubts, even though they hadn't expressed them. In verse 29 we read, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, finally, was also with the disciples whom Jesus appeared to by the Sea of Tiberias and shared a meal with. Perhaps Thomas has been dubbed doubting over the years because it reflects the feelings of those who have given him the title. It certainly isn't because he doubted at the time any more than the rest of the disciples as we have seen. Indeed, it was Thomas direct questions which allowed Jesus to make important statements about our faith, our belief and the way to eternal life. Thomas certainly did not lack trust in Jesus' ministry or his teachings as we saw when he unhesitatingly encouraged the disciples to return to Judea with Jesus even though he knew that he might be returning to an horrendous death by stoning and the other disciples were not so keen. What can we learn from Thomas? Firstly, that it's okay to have questions. Jesus spent a long time in the last days of his ministry trying to preempt and answer questions that he knew the disciples would have about this unique event in history that was about to happen and would change the world forever. Thomas, through his inquiring mind, asked the questions the other disciples probably had, but didn't ask. There have been, through the years, 
a number of noted scientists who have set out to write books to disprove the existence of Christ as the Son of God and have ended up having to accept that all the evidence they have gathered proves exactly the opposite and that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God. And they have written their books accepting this and encouraging others to accept it as well. Perhaps one of the best known of these is Josh McDowell, who wrote More Than a Carpenter, a book which Lynn and I have given countless copies to various people over the years. We've also given several copies to Nick, who's tried to read the book, but he's always had to give it away to somebody while he's been in flight, so we never ever got them back. But that's great, because, you know, it's spreading the word out there. But it is a brilliant book. Well, the guy who wrote it, when he started to write it, was an atheist. And he only came to a knowledge of Christ through having an inquiring mind and asking questions. There are also many intellectuals and scientists who have been atheists and after studying scripture have reached the conclusion that Christianity and faith are the only reasonable answers to their questions. Probably one of the best known of these is C.S. Lewis, who when, as he saw it, God didn't heal his mum of cancer when he was a young lad, set off on a path of rationalism and atheism. In CBN's C.S. Lewis' Journey to Faith, we are told this, The road back to faith was cluttered with obstacles Lewis once thought impossible to overcome. His conversion to robust Christianity required years of intellectual struggle and came only after being convinced that faith was reasonable. Lewis himself wrote this, I knelt in prayer to become the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. But the intellectual arguments were too compelling for him to do anything other than give his life over to God. If you want to read more, then CBN's article makes a very good reading about intellectualism and Christianity. And you can Google it if you just put in uh, C.S. Lewis' Journey to Faith. There's some remarkable reading there. But you don't need to be a scientist or an intellectual to have questions for God, either before you make a Christian commitment or afterwards. God gave us all a brain, and he expects us to use it, and not just follow blindly. There would have been no need to give us free will if that were the case. God is bigger than any of our questions. God is bigger than any of our questions. And if we seek the answers in an open and honest way, he will provide them, either directly or through scripture or trusted and experienced Christian friends. So was Thomas doubting? I hope you agree with me that on the intellectual evidence that we've just received, that he wasn't. His actions certainly didn't indicate any doubt in his faith and trust in Jesus. He was a man with an inquiring mind looking for answers, as many of us do today, who vocalised those questions perhaps more than some. But when he had an answer that satisfied him, he was the first to declare his trust and faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour. I have several Christian friends who have followed similar routes to faith, but God calls us all differently because 
we are all unique. But it is in accepting in faith that statement as truth in our lives that Jesus makes in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we accept that and follow it with repentance and a changed life, living for Christ, because if we truly come into a relationship with Christ and truly repent of all of our previous sins, we can do nothing but have a changed life. Anyone who says they've accepted Christ as their Lord and Saviour and you see no difference in their lifestyle or the way in which they speak or act, I have to have doubts about whether that statement they've made is true. There can be nothing that happens without a changed life once we've made that commitment. And because of that, we can all have that sure and certain hope of resurrection to an eternal life when we are called home, as Jesus promised Martha in John 11:25. I hope by now, and I hope I've done Nick justice by expressing it in the way that I have, that you no longer believe that Thomas deserves that title of doubting. Far from it. But it is okay to have questions. And it is okay to seek answers. Amen.